सहनावतु सहनावभुनक्तु सहावीर्यं करवाहवाहि तेजस्वीनावतीतमास्तु मावितविशावाहि Welcome to my podcast, The Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles. Today, we're going to look into a fascinating subject, the seven states of consciousness. The basic idea is that the world as we experience it actually is a state of consciousness that we're in at any given time. We can't really say that there's one objective reality. There are seven realities based in seven consciousness states. So, for example, two people who happen to be occupying the same room who are in two separate states of consciousness, one who may be in a dull version of the waking state, another who may be in the dreaming state, will be able to report after a 15-minute epoch two completely separate experiences that were had in that same one object environment. And so then, what is the reality that you can report upon? It turns out that all reports are reports upon the state of consciousness of the reporter. States of consciousness mean to what extent can you be aware how much can you be aware of? What is the expanse of your awareness? What is the degree of detail that you experience? And so then we need to look at this in a way that has an historic perspective. My teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, was adamant that the greatest gift that he brought to the West, which was a gift that was given to him by his teacher, was the understanding of these seven states. And so I think it may be time for my listeners to hear from me exactly what those seven states are and how they differ from each other. Let's start off with the degree to which experiences can be shared. In the sleep state, and we're going to describe sleep as a state where the body is in suspended animation and consciousness has gone down to virtually zero. We're not going to say quite zero because somebody who is asleep, after all, could in fact be awakened by you making enough sound in the room. So there is at least a degree of availability of consciousness, but relative to the regular waking state, someone who's in a sleep state is unaware of, say, the room in which they find themselves or what time of day or night it is, or any other stimuli. And two people who are in the sleep state can't really say that they're having a shared experience because each of them has a subjectivity which is nil, and the object world also as a product of that is nil. Now, let's look 
quickly at the dream state of consciousness when the body for a variety of reasons through its purification and normalization, its unstressing of stresses, begins to throw off the impressions of the past. It begins to unstress. This will trigger in the brain the consequence of a state of consciousness in which what we describe it, and I'll put it in quotes, illusory experience. Illusory with regard to verifiability by anyone else. One starts to have dreamy consciousness. And in dreamy consciousness, one is experiencing something which is not verifiable by any other third party. So in a dream, one is experiencing a variety of what is at the time very believable storyline Something happened, you know, I was climbing a tree and then I got out on the limb of the tree and the branch broke and I fell into a river. But when I realized I was in the river and I couldn't swim and I couldn't move my legs, then I discovered that the river was not water, it was actually sand. And the tree branch onto which I was holding wasn't a tree branch anymore, it was my brother's arm and he came up out of the sand and said, what are you doing here? I'm just making this up, by the way. One of the most eloquent commentators on the reason why we have dreams was Sigmund Freud. Freud's analysis of it is still one that is honored today, even with the great innovations of modern electroencephalography and other kinds of techniques we have for measuring what's happening in the brain during sleep when someone's dreaming, having rapid eye movement or REM sleep, R-E-M is rapid eye movement sleep. Freud's analysis was basically that when the body is throwing off stresses while we are in a rested state during sleep, it stimulates and provokes the brain. A certain amount of material begins to bubble up that is related to the various kinds of impressions that we are expunging ourselves of while we are resting and sleeping. But our brain will take those different stimuli and turn them into a storyline. Why? Because our brain doesn't want us to wake up. It wants us to continue resting and enjoying sleep. And so something that excuses all that mental activity caused by stress release, physiologic stress release, creating the mental activity, and the dream state begins. And so a storyline which is plausible will appear. And so Freud pointed out that, for example, if you had a friend who was coming at an appointed time, say 5 a.m., to take you on a pre-agreed fishing trip, and the friend came and began knocking at the door at 5 in the morning, but you were still asleep, perhaps you'd forgotten to set your alarm, your brain mechanism would hear the knocking on the door, knock, 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 knock and then use that stimulus to create a story, the story as the brain is gently waking into the dream state, might be something like you have a neighbor who is on their roof with a hammer, knock, 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 knock. And you might even feel slightly annoyed in this dream that your neighbor is making such a noise banging on their roof. Eventually, as the banging won't go away and the knocking gets louder, a phenomenon happens which we call punch-through, where one goes from the dream state into waking state consciousness, and it suddenly dawns on you that that knocking is not someone hammering next door, but that 
is actually your friend knocking on the door and you have to get up and deal with that reality. There's another old saying that also came from Freud, which was that you can't shoot a dreaming state tiger with a waking state gun. There are all kinds of things that we need to know about dreaming. One of them, which is fascinating, is that body paralysis occurs during most people's dream time. When they're in their dream state, they're not able to act out. This is a very important thing when you consider all the various kinds of experiences people might have while dreaming. This is why when, if we're dreaming, if we feel that we're frightened and we have to run from somebody or something, or we have to shout or scream, we simply cannot because we're paralyzed. And we're paralyzed during dreaming for a very good reason. If everybody in New York City in the middle of the night who was having a dream began acting out on the dreams that they had, if their bodies were not paralyzed, then it's highly likely that there'd be a tremendous amount of chaos and there may even be mayhem. So our ancestors who survived long enough to reproduce, it turns out that they were the ones who had body paralysis during dreaming, and all of us inherited it. Those are just a few fascinating things about the dream state, and we can go into greater detail about that on another occasion. So we have the sleep state, where we have zero subjective awareness and zero object world awareness. And then we have the sleep state, where we have a degree of subjective awareness inside, but we have an object world awareness that cannot be verified by any other party. It's not possible for anybody else to have the experience that we're having when we're dreaming or to share it. And this is one of the reasons why it is so difficult to find a happy listener when we are trying to describe a dream that we had. Uh, generally speaking, a friend would be able to be tested as a friend by virtue of the degree of enthusiasm they events at a time when you're trying to describe a dream to them. The description of a dream state is always going to be one-dimensional and textual. That is to say, you're using words to describe a whole set of experiences you had, but it's a set of experiences that only the dreamer had, and so it's almost impossible for anyone else to relate fully to the products of a dream. There are two kinds of nighttime cognitive phenomena. The first of these is what we would call rapid eye movement dreaming state, where stress release is occurring and stress release is driving the content. And therefore, the analysis of the content is relatively worthless because we would be analyzing a potpourri of material that surfaces as we are unstressing stresses from our body. The second type of cognitive experience that can be had during lying down, uh, eyes closed time, would be referred to as cognition. Cognition is a word that we use a lot in the Vedic worldview to describe a conscious realization of some deeper truth, one which is situational, or one that is part of our understanding of the world that we're about to emerge back into. Some people refer to nighttime cognitions as quotes-unquote lucid dreaming. But in fact, it's not dreaming. It's the way in which our brain and mind together are mythologizing 
and creating a legendary telling of some deeper truth that we can find applicable to action. And that kind of nighttime cognition is a completely separate category. One of the ways that, one of the things that makes it separate is that there is no evidence that rapid eye movement occurs except during dreaming. During true dreaming, rapid eye movement occurs during uh, so-called lucid dreaming or cognition. There's no rapid eye movement. Why do we have rapid eye movement during dreaming? Well, there's a storyline going on. Dreams actually happen at a far faster rate than the waking state world moves. The waking state world moves at a certain pace that you can measure by a clock and by second hands and things. When we're dreaming, it may seem as though time is passing in the usual waking state fashion, but studies have shown universally that most dreams, no matter how long they feel they are, actually are over with in a matter of minutes. And so the material that's speeding by in a dream, by waking state standard, by the waking state clock, is going at a very fast rate. It's a little like, imagine watching a big screen movie. And the movie is playing at high speed. And your eyes sitting in the audience have to cover the entire screen, watching all the action occurring at high speed. Your eyes would be looking up and down and to left and right and following all the action. And so what's happening during rapid eye movement and dreaming is exactly that. Our mind, our brain, is instructing our eyes to watch the action in high speed. And this makes the eyeballs move around and gyrate and move left, right, up and down in all kinds of ways. And we can see the eyelids fluttering. You might be able to see this in a partner or in children when they're sleeping. When you see rapid eye movement occurring, you see the eyelids fluttering. That's dreaming going on. So we have the sleep state. Again, zero subjectivity, zero object world. We have the dream state, a degree of subjective inner awareness and the object world verifiable only by the dreamer. Then we have the waking state. And the waking state is characterized by its own unique psychophysiological signature. If we look at sleep state, there's a certain level of oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide elimination and brain activity measurable through an EEG electroencephalograph that measures the electrical impulses that are percolating through the skull. And in a lab setting, we can measure what the dream state looks like electrically on the scalp of the person. Likewise, dream state, which has its own unique set of physiological signatures. The waking state has a physiological signature. Now, we could be awake and lying in bed staring at the ceiling and thinking about things. Or we could be awake and running down the street for exercise or we could be awake and be in combat, or we could be awake and watching a movie, or we could be awake and being romantic with somebody or having a meal. And so there's a vast spectrum of physiological signatures, that is to say, how the brain and the body are behaving during the waking state. But within that spectrum, we can say there are certain marked things that demonstrate that a person is awake and capable of responding to a variety of stimuli. And so then we have the waking state with its unique spectrum of psychophysiological signatures.
These three consciousness states, the sleeping state, the dreaming state, and the waking state, are described in the ancient Vedic literature as the quotes-unquote relative consciousness states. They're relative in the sense that they are related to the ever-changing, that is, relative world. But they're relative in another regard, and that is that they're related to each other. The extent to which you need to sleep is based on how tired you got from the waking state. The extent to which you need to unstress during the sleep state and have dreams as a consequence of that is also related to how tired you got during the waking state. If you have sleep deprivation and you're awake for too long and your body becomes very fatigued, not only will you sleep longer if you're allowed to or if you allow yourself to, but you will also dream a tremendous amount. Sleep studies show unambiguously that a lot of rapid eye movement occurs when a person has been sleep deprived. So there's more dreaming that occurs the more tired you are when you do finally go to sleep. Likewise, the waking state is going to have a degree of clarity based on how well you slept and also based upon how well you dreamed. How efficiently did you release stress while dreaming? And so waking state is related in its clarity and or dullness to sleeping and dreaming. Sleeping and dreaming are in turn uh, caused by or made functional by how much you were awake and how tired you got. So we have these three relative states of consciousness, relative because they're changeable and in the ever-changing relative world, and relative because they are related to each other. Then comes the advent of Vedic meditation. You learn a technique where you close your eyes, you settle down into quieter and quieter consciousness states, and you're awake inside. In our particular technique, in our tradition, we're making use of individualized mantras. Each mantra is a sound that is learned as a word verbally, but you experience it silently from inside as a pulsation of sound. It's not experienced on the level of meaning. The mind is liberated to simply experience the mellifluous sound of that pulsation of that mantra repeating in the mind. And as the mantra becomes subtler and fainter and quieter, which is its nature to do, it also becomes intrinsically more charming. And this is because the subtler, quieter consciousness states intrinsically contain a greater amount of charm, that is to say happiness, than the gross conscious thinking levels. The mind is geared in such a way that it will spontaneously move and without effort in the direction of greater happiness. You know, anytime you're listening to music in one room and a more pleasant melody happens to come from a different room, the attention will not hesitate to gravitate to the more charming sound the more charming music. If you were to use effort, you could try to focus on the less charming music, but it would mostly be futile. And so what this analogy shows is that our mind naturally moves towards the greater happiness. It will do so spontaneously. And in Vedic meditation, we make use of a group of mantras. There are different mantras that work best for different people. 
that as you think the mantra effortlessly, its increasing subtlety draws the mind inward because the sound becomes more and more charming the subtler it gets. Then there's a point that's reached where the mantra becomes so faint that it is almost imperceptible and yet incredibly charming to the mind. And as that evaporates, the mind is left for a moment in a state where there is no mantra and no thought replacing it. And that state is a state of consciousness, knowing consciousness. That state, for however brief or however long it lasts, is a state of pure being. It is transcendent. There is 100% subjectivity, but the object world is gone. That is pure, subjective, inner awareness. And so we have a transcendent state now, a fourth state. This fourth state in Sanskrit is called Turiya. Turiya is a consciousness state where consciousness knows itself. Consciousness is awake and it's experiencing itself being. There is no object of awareness. There is no thought form. And that state is a state that every meditator can experience, which is a pure, inner, serene contentedness. The contentedness of the state is so great that in that state, the mind cannot conceive of a reason why it should think about anything else or think about another possibility or move. Thinking, after all, is a mechanism that we employ to have a better experience than the experience we're having right now. You look at what happens when people sit down with their iPhone in their pocket. And the moment they have a second in which they have some spare time, out comes the iPhone to look at Instagram or to look at Facebook or to look for text messages or to look for emails or to play games or to do whatever else that wonderful little device can do. In other words, the charm of the present moment, if I have some time to kill, is not great. Let's pull out this little phone and go to the field of greater happiness. And so then, you know, this demonstrates the way that the human mind is discontented. I can't just sit in a room. If I'm about to make a recording like this and I'm sitting in a waiting room, do I want to just sit in the waiting room where there is nothing? Or do I want to pull out my phone and see if there's something more fascinating. And this shows how when we have a low level of inner contentedness, our mind is easily distractible. The slightest little thing that looks as though it might provide something more interesting than where I am causes a thought to occur. And so thoughts are the mechanisms whereby we try to move from something less fascinating, something less charming, less happiness, to more happiness. Let me think my way into happiness. And it may be that you think about problems. Why? Well, you're trying to untie the knots. The promise of happiness is on the other side of the dissolution of the, of the problem. So thinking is a mechanism for generating greater happiness than where I am now. And this is why all of the distractibility of the outer world, the basis on which it functions, it relies upon a discontented mind. Now, when we experience that deep 
serene inner contentedness of transcendence in the fourth state, in Turiya. There's other names for the state, being, pure consciousness, pure awareness. Pure doesn't mean pure as in, you know, you're having pious thoughts. It's pure in the sense of it being consciousness standing alone or being alone. There are no thoughts. When we look at that state and we begin to see the effect that experiencing that state has, the meditator goes into that consciousness state and their consciousness, their mind, their individuality, their sense of what they are identifies with that state. In the same way that if I watch a really good adventure movie, I might identify with the experiences of the main character. Or if I watch a dreadful something on a movie or television, I might be so deeply shocked and horrified and appalled by what I've experienced because part of my consciousness has identified with it. And so consciousness tends to identify what it sees, what it perceives. It identifies with what it's perceiving. It gives itself identity and definition based on what it's experiencing. Now in this fourth state, we have consciousness identifying itself with an unbounded field. This unbounded conscious field turns out to be the source of creative intelligence, the source of thought. It itself is not a thinking state, but it's the source of thinking. It's the one indivisible whole consciousness field. And so when our inner awareness identifies with that, whose nature is pure contentedness, it is pure self-referral bliss. When we call it bliss, we have to realize that we don't mean by this ecstatic happiness, like blissfulness, we mean pure serene contentedness. That imbues itself into the nature of the mind. The mind now has identified with that state. Then when you come out of your 20 minutes of practice of Vedic meditation, and you engage the daily world, now the mind is not so easily distractible. Why? It's because the mind is happy. The mind has a level of happiness in it that is deeply steeped into its own nature. And a mind which is already happy is able to focus more easily. A mind that's already happy is not so easily distractible by the seductive power of a tiny little thought of something that might give you yet another wave of, you know, a little hit of greater happiness than where you are. And so this is a mind which, when you put it on something, easily is able to stay right where you put it because it's already content. Contentedness has been added to the mind's nature. And this mind now is not going to be as unruly and so eminently distractible. It's able to just stay exactly where you put it. And so then, though we don't use concentration or control during the practice of Vedic meditation, because what we want is to use the mind's existing nature to move towards greater happiness, to cause us to dive into that deep inner contented silence. So we don't use concentration or control. It has no place in our practice. But as a result of practicing, when we return to the waking state after the fourth state, the transcendent state, 
when we return to daily life, to waking life, we'll find that our mind is far more easily able to stay on mission, far more easily able to identify what is valuable, far less likely to be easily hypnotized by the suggestions of social phenomena and social media. And so this is a mind that then starts to become in grades with daily practice, morning, evening. We practice Vedic meditation each morning and each evening for about 20 minutes. The mind becomes steeped in this inner state. And that inner state starts to become more and more stable. In the very beginning days of the practice of meditation, we find that in order to experience that deep, unbounded consciousness field, the field of being, one has to sit in a chair, close the eyes, and allow the mind to settle into that inner bliss. And of course it does so willingly. And as it does so, the body follows into a state of deep, profound restfulness. The physiologic signature of the fourth state is well established now. It's a wakeful, hypometabolic state. Hypo means low. Metabolic means the rate at which you are burning up your primary fuel, which in the measurements that are used for determining these things, that primary fuel is oxygen. So the rate at which the body is burning oxygen as its primary fuel, this is the metabolic rate. And hypometabolic means very low metabolic rate that evinces a level of rest that's occurring in the meditator's body while practicing the meditation technique. That level of rest is somewhere between two and five times more restful than the deepest levels of rest that can be acquired at any point in a night's sleep. And so that's a very, very deeply restful state. It's a state in which stresses are easily able to be released. Dreams are not necessary because one is awake and conscious, so the brain is not inventing excuses to stay in the state. It loves the state. It's just going to stay in it and allow stresses to unwind and release. As you come out of the meditation and you engage in daily life, not only do you have that baseline happiness, lively, and that baseline contentedness, very lively and tangible, palpable, but also your body is less stressed because stresses that have been accumulating for years that could not be released by merely going to sleep at night. Sleep relative to meditation is a relatively inferior form of rest your accumulated stress inventory becomes depleted with each successive practice of meditation sessions, a state is going to come where something changes. As we release the stresses in our body and we continuously expose the mind to that deep, serene inner contentedness, the bliss of the meditation state, something new has to begin happening because the brain is training itself to have more ready access to that deep inner quiet unboundedness. What begins to happen for most meditators is that after about six months to a year of practice of experiencing this deep inner state, they start to notice something that's rather peculiar. They're in their meditation state, they're in their deepest possible state where the mind is utterly content. And in past, in order to experience that state, all thoughts would evaporate first. But now they have the peculiar experience that they're in that deep state, experiencing being, experiencing the unbounded feeling 
of that, and yet some faint thinking is able to occur simultaneously with that state of being, which previously could only be experienced on its own without thought. Now the mind is beginning to experience the capacity faintly to have thinking, faint thoughts or maybe faint mantra, along with the unboundedness of being. This is the beginnings of a fifth consciousness state. That fifth consciousness state will mature as the meditator continues practicing morning and evening, morning and evening. There is a stabilization of that experience, of that deep inner quiet consciousness state. It begins to stabilize and stabilize until a time comes where at the end of the 20 minutes meditation time, one still feels that one's in that state, that deep inner unbounded state, and it's time to open one's eyes and come out of the meditation. And when one opens one's eyes and comes out, the world is suddenly there, the regular waking state world is there, and yet one is experiencing that world as if from that deep inner silent contented state. There is no interrupting of or overshadowing of that unboundedness. But perhaps if you got up as you need to do and headed towards the door to engage the world and do all the things you're called upon to do, that unboundedness would become overshadowed by the activity of the moving body and the mind's necessity to think and speak and engage. And so then you go back to your regular twice-a-day practice as ever, and what happens is that inner deep state of unboundedness becomes more and more stable. Stable means that it's less easily overshadowed by outer phenomenology such as sensory experience, taste, touch, smell, sounds, sights. It's less easily overshadowed by thinking, by the body moving and acting until a time comes where that deep inner unboundedness is able to have become so stable that even when you open your eyes after a meditation session for hours, the mind is still in a state that is in full embrace of the bliss of being, even though engaging in everyday activities. The activities in no way overshadow the inner consciousness state of bliss. When this state lasts all day, and the surprising part of this is it also lasts all night. That is to say you lie down to go to sleep and you silently witness your body falling asleep. You witness the body sleeping. You witness the snoring sounds or other breathing sounds that your body might make when you're sleeping there is greater and greater wakefulness while body is sleeping. Now the mind is awake inside, enjoying being in the bliss condition while the body is resting through the night. When it's time to awaken, then the body and the brain awaken into regular waking state mode, and that state of being continues to be one's inner sense of identity. Uh, one is no longer identified by my name is John, and I was born in Kansas City, and, you know, I went to kindergarten, and, you know, I had certain experiences, and, uh, you know, I'm shaped by all those experiences of the world. Those stories are still there. But one's inner sense of not just who I am, because who has to do with all those events, 
but what I am. I appear to be this one indivisible whole conscious state that cannot be overshadowed. And it is a state of completeness, of absolute resourcefulness. It is a state of the fountainhead of creative intelligence. It is a state that is infinitely capable. And so its sense of capability, its quality, its capability to be steadfast, to be uninterruptedly able, capable, that appears now to become growing and growing and it's grown into what my inner identity is. On the outer, this body continues having a story to which others can relate. These are the circumstances of the birth of my body. These are the circumstances of where I took the body and where it was educated and where, uh, you know, what I ate and what my family was like and the cultural reactions and all of that. But the knower inside there who is in that stabilized fifth consciousness state, the state that has combined that deep inner fourth condition with waking state and with sleeping state, this has now become all-inclusive. If one were asked and able to give a candid response to someone who wouldn't be bewildered by it, one literally could say, I am the unbounded consciousness field. I am that state of being uh, from which I'm experiencing all of this through my senses, through my body, and so on. And so our sense of identity is now naturally graduating into a higher consciousness state. And traditionally, this fifth state of consciousness becoming stable is the first level of what we would call quotes unquote enlightenment. Enlightenment has three stages to it. The fifth consciousness state has a name. In Sanskrit, it's called nitya samadhi. Nitya means eternal. Samadhi means pure consciousness. By eternal, it means it can't be overshadowed by anything that might occur in the waking state and the dreaming state and the sleep state. It's a state that is no longer conditional on you practicing meditation. This might sound surprising to veteran meditators that you do arrive in a state which, even if you didn't meditate, it can't go away. It's no longer meditation dependent. You would continue practicing your meditation. For reasons I'll explain in a few minutes, there are higher consciousness states that can be experienced through continued practice of the meditation technique, but the inner sense of self is permanently established and it won't go away. You can't go backwards. As I've said to people, if, if the sound of 24-hour bliss is not appealing to you, then you need to stop meditating right away because whether you believe in it or you don't believe in it, this is not a faith-based thing. As you continue practicing meditation, there will be irrevocable movement toward that unbounded consciousness state being your deep inner reality and 24-hour bliss is a product of that. And so in that state, one is continuously experiencing unboundedness as a background and a backdrop to all of the daily waking state phenomena. This is a mind which absolutely is resolute. It's resolute in that it's easy to identify what needs to be done, if anything at all needs to be done, what it is that needs to be done. 
and not to be distracted by trivia, by the offerings of you know little tiny blips of happiness possibilities here or there, a mind which sits quietly in its inner bliss and which is deeply impressed by itself, not egotism, not that you know one is sitting around thinking about one's individuality and aggrandizing it, but the deep inner self, that which is beyond thought, is one's true reality, and that's the most impressive thing. All other needs, all other demands, all other worthy inquiries can be dealt with and are dealt with with an abundance of creative intelligence, energy, staying power, This is a person who, although they could become stressed, if a major stressful event were to occur, the body could go into a stress reaction because that's a survival reaction, but there can be no accumulation of stress because this is a mind and a brain and a body which are permanently, even when the eyes are open, in a state of restfulness that is greater than most people's restfulness when they're asleep. And yet this person is awake and dynamic and able to act. What that means is that phenomena which could be stressful to the average person and cause stress to accumulate, stress cannot accumulate in this person. There's an analogy in the ancient Upanishadic literature of the Vedas of taking a rusty chisel and chiseling a deep groove into granite taking the same rusty chisel and chiseling a deep groove into sand, taking the same chisel and using it to draw a line in a mirror-like surface of water. The same chisel, the chisel being rusty and so on, is just to give us an impression of the convincing power of the outside world, which goes into the medium of granite. The granite line stays virtually forever. Some archaeologists may find it 100,000 years later. The chisel that makes its line in sand, well, that medium of sand is not known for its staying power. And perhaps within a day or two or a bit of high tide or wind or whatever, the sand line is gone, even though it was the rusty chisel that made the line. The same rusty chisel now carving a line in water, and the line is there for a second and then gone. And so the capacity of stress to make a deep impression with which one identifies oneself in cosmic consciousness, in nitya samadhi, in the all-inclusive consciousness state, and we're calling this the fifth state of consciousness, one could be deeply impressed by something and have a complete and thorough reaction to the world, and yet that reaction is not defining of oneself. What defines you in that state is the fact of that place from where you're experiencing everything, the one indivisible whole consciousness state. So we call this cosmic consciousness because the word cosmic implies all-inclusive. But there are another two states that are above and beyond cosmic consciousness. As one is in cosmic consciousness, you cannot transcend anymore. You can't go beyond thought to experience the field of being because your mind is grounded in that state. You are that state. And so you can't close your eyes and go to a state that you're already experiencing from. But 
the experience of the medium of experience in the mantra. The mantra is the medium of experience in meditation. The mantra has the capacity to become infinitely faint. How faint can a thing get? This is a good question for the physicists in the audience. How faint can a thing get? If I make a sound and I let the sound start with bing, and you let it fade, how faint can it become before it's not there anymore? We could say there is a silent state, there's no vibration, there's no sound. But from the loud bing to something very faint, a very faint bing. What is the faintest level of active sound where there's still activity of sound and vibration? It's not a flat line, but there's still something perceptible. The mantra has the capacity to become infinitely faint. That means as you're experiencing it in your consciousness while meditating, in cosmic consciousness, you're sitting in cosmic consciousness, you are the field of being. The mantra can't take you to the field of being anymore. You are the field of being. And you're experiencing a sound that has the capacity to become fainter and fainter and fainter and fainter infinitely. And as it does so, the mantra changes from being just a sound to having other sensory data in it. And that other sensory perceptible data starts off as that sound also has a quality of sight to it. That is to say, you begin to see something. And what you see is something that is glowing, a glowing golden consciousness field. And so mantra starts to lead our five senses, taste, touch, smell, sight, and sound, via sound as the primary. Mantra is a sound in the mind. But you know it's like a five-legged table. Uh, the five senses, the five legs of the table, if you pull one of the legs along, all the other four legs will follow. As the mind experiences the subtlest states of the mantra, the very, very, very subtle states, all of the five senses become greatly sharpened and honed to an infinite acuity of perceptual capability. That is to say, things can be experienced at the quantum mechanical level of sight, of sound, of smell, of taste, touch. The ability starts in the meditation state and then progresses to the outer state. And what it is that one is experiencing is the subtlest phenomena that are able to be experienced within the perceptible world around oneself. The tiniest, subtlest phenomena. That is to say, not just the very small, but the very subtle. The almost quiet, but not quite quiet. The almost invisible, but not quite invisible that which is almost beyond the range of tactile, but you're still able to feel something. And what this gives you is the capacity to sense change happening and what the quality of that change is. Everything is changing at every moment. Change is inexorable. It's reality of absolutely everything, everyone, every relationship, every alliance, every object, Every form, every phenomenon is going through change. But to what extent can you detect the quality of the change? 
there are forces of creative intelligence that govern the quality of change. And we can put those forces into the creation operator forces, the maintenance operator forces, and the destruction operator forces that disintegrate things that are no longer relevant. The creation operator forces, the maintenance operator forces, the the forces of disintegration when relevancy has finished, when the shelf life of a form, a phenomenon, a relationship, an object is over. And what happens is that our mind and our brain in this state of consciousness are able to model these experiences as personality. They have a quality of character. Character and personality begin to be detectable as the impulses of creative intelligence that are governing all of the phenomenology of change, of creation, invention, innovation, then maintenance of that which is relevant to evolution, and then that which is the disintegrator of and scavenges all of that which no longer is relevant. To be able to experience this as personalized, personalized in the form of beings with a lowercase b. We have being, capital B, which is the unbounded consciousness field, and then sitting on the surface of that is a layer that can only be described accurately as celestial. That is to say, one can experience uh, first with eyes closed in meditation and then moving into the eyes open state a glorified cosmic consciousness state. This glorified cosmic consciousness state is a state of cosmic consciousness and boundedness of awareness inside that also has with it the perceptual acuity of the subtlest phenomenology of the world. And in this, one ceases to wonder about anything because all of the mechanisms by which the world is governing itself, the entire evolutionary process is one that with which one becomes intimately familiar. And so then, as this progresses and progresses and progresses, our sensory capability through our regular practice of Vedic meditation in cosmic consciousness grows and grows and grows, and then a quantum leap happens. And our individual perceptual capability is about to jump from this glorified cosmic consciousness state, which we're going to now number as the sixth state of consciousness, into the seventh state. And what could that be? Is there anything possible beyond experiencing the subtlest phenomenology through our senses of the relative world while we're established in the state of being? Sixth state sounds fairly ultimate, but there is one state beyond it. As our senses grow and grow in their capacity to become more and more acute, more and more capable, the senses are able to transcend the relativity of the world around and to detect at the perceptual level the field of being itself because all of this changing world around us including the very subtle, the celestial, including all of the grosser, more surface level, most expressed layers, actually are phenomenology that arise out of the one indivisible whole unified field. Now we've already established that in cosmic consciousness, 
in the fifth state, one is identified with that inner characteristic of being, capital B, that field of being. And one identifies oneself or thinks about oneself. I appear to be this one indivisible whole consciousness field, and outside there is this ever-changing relative world. Then in glorified cosmic consciousness, the sixth state, one is able to experience all of the mechanisms behind the processes of change. What are the mechanisms? What is it that explains the changeability of the world? What is it that is the play and display of creative intelligence? Now in the seventh state of consciousness, the senses have been able to penetrate into the deepest reality of that relative ever-changing world. And that deepest reality is that actually this ocean of waves is an ocean of the same unbounded nature as the nature of my inner consciousness state itself. I am the field of being, have identified as that ever since cosmic consciousness dawned. And what I experience through my senses is that all of this relativity also is the state of being. That's the state of being in motion, like the unbounded ocean breaking its symmetry constantly and making itself into waves. And I, the experiencer, am also the state of being. I am the infinite one, indivisible whole unboundedness. And I'm experiencing that as my inner reality and the outer reality of the ever-changing world also is the one indivisible whole, but it is in motion. It is moving in waves. An ocean doesn't become smaller or become non-unbounded simply because it moves in waves. A wavy ocean is just as big and unbounded as an ocean that is perfectly still. So the perfectly still ocean of one's inner sense of identity, being, is experiencing itself in the object world the objects all being simply the expressions of that one indivisible whole field. Being is experiencing being. The silent field of being inside is experiencing the active, moving, undulating field of being outside. Outside being, inside being. And when outside is being and inside is being, we have unity. The self is experiencing the self. That deep inner self, capital S, is experiencing itself in all objects, in all forms, in all phenomenology. This is the seventh state of consciousness, unity consciousness. And beyond unity consciousness, there's no real possibility of, of growth. Cosmic consciousness, the fifth state, is considered in the Vedic worldview to be a state of normality. Waking and dreaming and sleeping states are relative states, and then at some stage of one's life, if you were in a, living in an age where parents knew how to teach this, you would be able to experience the fourth state, the unbounded consciousness state, early, you know, as a child in single-digit years of life. And by the time the brain and body had completed their growth in early maturity, then one naturally would arrive in the fifth state, cosmic consciousness. And so cosmic consciousness, a, f a state that is free from the capacity to accumulate stress, uh, cosmic consciousness would be a natural occurrence in anyone who had learned 
how to meditate at a relatively early age, then that normality then is exposed to continuous practice of meditation. The glorified cosmic consciousness state, the fifth state, is something that is a development where cosmic consciousness is a natural unfoldment of normality. The sixth state of glorified cosmic consciousness is something that one actually develops, and so it requires some training of the brain to get into that condition. And likewise, the seventh state is a state that is developed. Cosmic consciousness, normality baseline, and then sixth state of consciousness, glorified cosmic consciousness with all heightened sensory perception, followed by unity consciousness, where the self is experiencing self. These two, these last two, are states that are states of development from normality, where we could say they are rather ultra-normal. They are extraordinary, rather than simply being ordinary cosmic consciousness. This gives us a completely different look at what we think of as normality. Normality is the first state of enlightenment. Um, that's normal. Anything less than that, where we've accumulated stress, where we have lost our capacity to have supreme inner contentedness while experiencing the world, where we've lost the capacity to have an inner identity rather than the result of not having cosmic consciousness is that our identity is constantly being structured by outer experiences that I am a product of whatever I've experienced. And if I've never experienced the fourth state, then I'm only a product of the circumstantial phenomenology through which my body has been since birth. I am defined by those experiences that have occurred since I was born to my body, to my mind and body. Uh, a meditator adds a new element to this, that deep inner unboundedness state, and this becomes the thing by which I identify myself, and the relative world begins to change accordingly. And so we see seven states of consciousness in order, sleeping state, and then dreaming state, greater awareness but only compared with sleep state, waking state, a variety of states of awareness depending on how tired you are or how intoxicated you are or whatever. So large spectrum of waking state. The fourth state, the state of transcendence where one goes beyond thought and experiences being. The fifth state where that inner field of being combines with waking and sleeping in order to be able to have inner consciousness 24 hours a day. The sixth state in which sensory perception is super refined, our senses become super acute, and our capacity to witness all the mechanisms of creation, maintenance, and destruction of the relative world, all those deep inner phenomenologies become very familiar to us. And then finally, unity consciousness, the seventh state. And so we can say that there are seven different worlds, and then these seven different worlds are the worlds that are the products of the seven consciousness states, as the world is not one objectifiable world. It's a world that is reflective of and expressive of whatever consciousness state one is in. So we're in a interesting program of being able to change our experience of the world we're in and the opportunities in that world by the immeasurable advantage of being able to change our consciousness state 
and make ourselves more and more relevant to what needs to be happening in society. Jay Gurudev. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you. <laughs>